Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. The year was 1855. The Civil War had not yet broken out, but the U.S. was heading in that direction. The country at odds over slavery. The lawyer Abraham Lincoln wrote to his best friend, who was the son of a Kentucky slave owner. Lincoln rebuked him for failing to oppose slavery, but he added, If for this you and I must differ, differ we must. And Lincoln said, they would be friends forever. Differ We Must is the title of a new book by journalist Steve Inskeep, of course, co-host of NPR's Morning Edition and NPR's podcast Up First. He joins me now. Steve, such a pleasure to have you on our program. Thanks for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America, your latest book. Your previous books include mm. uh, Imperfect Union and Jackson Land. In this book, Steve, you reconstruct 16 of Lincoln's encounters, also with an eye on our current array of societal and uh, political dysfunction, now some 170 years later. Uh, Throughout his Hmm. life and political career, uh, you point out that Lincoln often disagreed, uh, he agreed to disagree, and your book's main insight is what? That Lincoln tried to deal with people who differed with him and that he sought agreement where he could and sought advantage when he couldn't get agreement. Lincoln was doing something that I think we struggle with today, that we're very frustrated with today. Uh, it is tempting to say that it's uh, that it's naive to deal with somebody on the other side of the political divide because you're never going to persuade them. You could even say it's morally wrong to associate with someone. Uh, you read that letter from the beginning, uh, where, which Lincoln wrote to his best friend, you could argue, like, Abraham Lincoln, why would you ever have a best friend who came from a slaveholding family? There's something wrong with that. Lincoln took a different approach to these encounters that I think is relevant today. And it's not that he changed his mind or that he, 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 he held his tongue necessarily. It's not that he changed the other person's mind. I think he understood how hard that was and how hard that is today. It's really hard to change somebody's mind when they're dug in on something. But he would try to understand who the other person was and see if there was some narrow era area of agreement. And even if there wasn't that, what information could he gain or what advantage could he gain from this exchange? And so throughout his life, this basically tells his whole life story through a series of meetings with people who differed with him. Lincoln was continually trying to figure out, how can I work with this radical anti-slavery abolitionist who's more of a radical than me? What can I gain from talking to this slave owner whose view of the world is completely different from mine? How can I deal with this black person who lives in my community in Springfield, Illinois, and is legally in a different world because of discriminatory laws in Illinois? There are all these different kinds of people in an incredibly diverse country, and Lincoln, in each case, was trying to get something out of that encounter. Mm -hmm. You have 16 encounters here that you illustrate in great detail. Most of the names I did not recognize, not being a historian of this era, but of course we recognize... Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've written two books on the era, and some of these names were new to me. Some of them are super famous, but others, you know, I was like, what? I never heard of them. Right. Okay, so pick out an encounter in this book that illustrates the points you just made. Tell us a little bit about it. Oh, 
Gosh, well, let's think about uh, one of the more famous ones. General George McClellan, people who follow the Civil War, who study the Civil War, will be familiar with this name. He was a Union general. He was the general-in-chief for a little while of the Union armies, and Lincoln really depended on him to basically win the war with the main Union army and had phenomenal continuous frustration. They disagreed about everything, disagreed about how to fight the war, uh, even disagreed about slavery. This is early in the war. Lincoln was on his way toward the Emancipation Proclamation, where he would declare, decree the freedom of millions of enslaved enslaved laborers in rebel-held areas in the South. And McClellan, although he was in favor of the Union, didn't really believe in that at all, was very prejudiced against black people, uh, and thought maybe they should be emancipated sometime, but, but not right now. So they didn't agree about anything. Lincoln even managed to get him out of command, maneuvered him out of his command. And yet, at a moment of crisis, when he needed somebody, he said to an aide, we have to work with the tools we have, and he reached out to McClellan, put him back in command of the army, McClellan won a victory, and it was just enough of a victory, the Battle of Antietam in 1862, to set the stage for issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. So that's one of many ironic, to me, examples where Lincoln dealt with someone who thought he was wrong about everything, but Lincoln managed to get some advantage out of the engagement. Mm -hmm. A very practical approach here. What can you say about uh, how Lincoln struggled or did not struggle with these compromises to to look at the highest priority and and you know in, in some cases you say it was some of the most painful parts or times when Lincoln left oh, the injustices yeah. unaddressed oh my goodness yes I mean it's it was clear that it was excruciating for him as it certainly was for other people and let's even talk about the Emancipation Proclamation that we were just discussing Lincoln did that about a year and a half into the war the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation um, and was massively criticized along the way by both sides, really all sides in the debate. Abolitionists such as Frederick Douglass are asking, why are you waiting so long? What is the matter with you? Why are you not acting? Why is this taking so long? Are you a racist? In fact, you are a racist. You represent, quote, Negro hatred. That is a phrase that Frederick Douglass used in public Mm. about President Lincoln. And he's also being, of course, criticized by the other side and saying you're a radical anti-slavery zealot who's destroying the country. And Lincoln was under even more pressure because part of the country had rebelled He needed to keep a majority of the country with him on the Union side so that they could field the larger army. And there were areas that were slave states. There were slave owners who were still loyal to the Union, and Lincoln needed their loyalty too. And the stress got so great in 1862 that there is a scene where a friend of his, Orville Browning, goes into the White House to see him in the White House library, and Lincoln just looks unhealthy, like he's going to die. And Browning expresses concern for his health. And all Lincoln says is, well, we all must die sometime. And Mm. Browning left the room with tears in his eyes, according to his own diary. That's how great the pressure was. But in the end, Lincoln came through, issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which was itself kind of a compromise. It freed some slaves and left other people in bondage. Um, It can be criticized for that. But he was trying to figure out the best way forward that matched all of the pressures on him and all the demands of his political coalition. 
Yeah. I guess, Steve, in, in writing this book, so relevant to our times, and of course we've had so many comparisons between uh, pre-Civil War, Civil War times, and our times now, that um, the distress that our nation is feeling these days. After researching and writing this book, what sense do you have about, well, takeaways for us, and maybe how Lincoln would have operated in today's divisive political landscape? You know, Lincoln obviously would have had to change his techniques to some extent because things like the media are different and our politics are different. But I think human nature does not change that much, and some things absolutely would apply. Coalition building is still important. No matter what different people believe, and people are going to have a wide range of beliefs because it's democracy, you need to build a majority in favor of democracy in order for this republic to endure. That was true then. He succeeded in doing it. It remains true now. And I want to say another thing when we talk about takeaways. A number of people who've read early copies or early versions of this book have said to me, this affects how I think about my ordinary interactions with people. Right. This affects my personal life. This affects how I think about the way that I want to talk to my wife. This mm. affects how I think about the way that I want to talk about climate change with people who don't really believe in it or other yeah. environmental causes, other things that can be divisive in our society. Lincoln thought about human nature. He believed that people were primarily driven by self-interest and that that was just the way that people were. And so you needed to match that self-interest somehow with a higher cause. You needed to meet people where they were and see what you could do with them and see what you could do with the situation that they were in. And I think that's a very constructive way to think about our fellow human beings and the way to approach them, to have some empathy and to think about the other person, even if you never agree on anything at all. You finish up this book, Steve, and to conclude here, you conclude with um, uh, Lincoln's wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, a famously difficult yeah. marriage. And you just zoomed down from the large political scene into the interpersonal family relationship here, a spousal relationship. Why did you choose to, mm. to, to finish the book with that encounter? First, thanks for getting to the end. I appreciate that. Um, partly it was just mechanics. I'm doing all these face-to-face -face meetings, and the face-to-face -face meeting I wanted to focus on was at the very end of Lincoln's life, the very last day of his life, as a matter of fact. But I think it was also a fitting way to conclude. He did have a difficult marriage where he had to exercise a lot of patience and forbearance and sometimes just fall silent when there was nothing to say about the difficult behavior that he was he was dealing with. Um, I think it is fair to say, and I'm not the first person to notice this, that he may have learned things in his marriage that helped him to deal with difficult people in his work. And he may well also have learned things in his work that helped him to deal with his difficult marriage. Mm. Steve, in researching and writing this book, did you imagine what it would be like to have yourself a conversation with Lincoln? I didn't. But uh, if I see him, I'll take a question <laughs> to him from, from you. We'll see what he has to say. Well, maybe he'll tell you, as you have in the book, a, a poop joke. <laughs> he did have a he did have a rough sense of humor that is true and nothing was off limits all right steve inskeep to 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 get further on that reference here it wasn't just a uh, uh an obscene little reference there was it steve it's actually an interesting story in this book so we'll leave it at that no and... they, they they all are yeah 
<laughs> All right. Steve Inskeep, co-host of NPR's Morning Edition, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. Steve, thank you so much and uh, really appreciate you bringing this book out and talking uh, with me about it. I appreciate the time. Take care. Bye. A recent conversation I had with NPR's Steve Inskeep. When we return after a short break, we continue looking back in U.S. history to revisit other moments of extreme partisan division and times when U.S. leaders reached across the aisle to find compromise. Examples from this country's founding years, as well as from the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. I'll be joined by presidential historian Tim Walsh, director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Back in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. And we're back with more River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Before the break, if you were with us, a recent conversation I had with NPR's Steve Inskeep about his latest book, Differ We Must. Uh, In that, he reconstructed 16 of Abraham Lincoln's encounters with those he disagreed. For the rest of the hour, let's continue in a historical vein, looking back in U.S. history more broadly, Uh, to revisit moments of extreme partisan division, but more emphasis on the moments when leaders reached across the aisle to find compromise. Joining us to do that, Tim Walsh. We know him well, Director Emeritus, Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch. Great to have you as a presidential historian joining us for the rest of the hour. I think this will be as Steve Inskeep's uh, interview was somewhat uplifting. We live in times that can really drag us down, can't we? We do sometimes uh, live in a, in a day-to-day world that makes us kind of depressed about the possibility for the future, but we can look back into the past and see great moments of compromise uh, among both the, the presidents, between presidents and Congress, between the three branches of government. So uh, I, I don't want to be Pollyannish about it, but, <laughs> but in effect, look, we can look back and see, see those examples, compromises, where not everybody wins. That is, it's not a, a, a victor take all, but really both sides achieving some of what they'd hoped. Well, let's start where we left off with Steve Inskeep, if we could, uh, when we work our way through. I know we're going to touch on the 18th centuries, even the founding days, the 19th, 20th, and even into our 21st century. But let's start off with Abraham Lincoln. And and just to remind uh, us, uh, you know, Steve Inskeep's main insight was that Lincoln learned, adapted, and sought advantage while interacting with people who disagreed with him. So let's go to the temperament of this 
this president, first of all, and then perhaps we can branch out to other presidents who had similar or dissimilar temperaments. That's right. What's interesting about Lincoln, of course, is that really he starts his career as a politician even long before the presidency, uh, dealing with his opponents and working together to find compromise or at least find some sort of agreement. And what's so important, and that's really uh, uh, evident in the title of, of Steve's book, is Differ We Must. That is, it doesn't mean that Lincoln was changing his opinion on any issue, but he had respect for those who had differing opinions. And when it came time, for example, even after the fact that the after he was elected, the uh, states of the, the South seceded before he'd even been inaugurated. So he knew he had vigorous opponents, but he looked to those men who had been his rivals for the presidency, people like uh, uh, Stanton, William Stanton, uh, and uh, uh, Edward Bates, and uh, uh, Simon Chase. And he said, I can use the skills that these men have to work toward commonality to resolve the conflict with the South, so that he listened, and they came to listen to him and begin to admire him for that ability to, to have uh, the, the courage and the confidence to accept what they had to say, to absorb it into his own views, and to come to a, to a common ground. You mentioned Rivals. Wasn't that the name of Doris Kearns Goodwin's? Doris Kearns' famous book, Team, Team of, of Rivals. Rivals. Yeah. And let me recommend, if people are interested in, in those kinds of books, she has another book that's somewhat derivative from that and other works, which mention other presidents, called Leadership. And leadership is a combination of humility and self-confidence, that ability to have the temperament to, to be calm enough to listen, to consider the values in what your opponent or, or your 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 uh, opposite has to suggest and, and going forward and finding a, a ground that, that doesn't satisfy everyone, mm-hmm. but respects what others have said, considers what others have said and gone forward. So that's what we're looking for in politics. And that's what we look for in compromise. It doesn't mean everybody's happy. We see that going back to the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Well, let's go back there. We're okay. going to this, the rest of this hour, I assume, I predict, <laughs> I anticipate we're going to jump back and forth uh, through uh, U.S. history here. Uh, you mentioned the, the founding fathers. So uh, what about Washington's temperament for compromise? Indeed, indeed. Washington, of course, was widely praised as, as a great man. In fact, there were those who suggested he should be the king of America so that when he was elected president, virtually by acclamation, uh, I think he had the false expectation that that there would be no opposition to what he had to to uh, uh, say and do in terms of, of leadership. But he found he did have opposition. But he came to understand that he could find common ground with uh, his opponents and the American people and, of course, became a, an enormously successful president. One, of course, we consider probably still our greatest president. But what's interesting, of course, is he also was the president of the Constitutional Convention. He saw with Federalists and Anti-Federalists in those delegates, those 56 individuals who sat in Philadelphia in that summer of, of 1787, lots of different arguments. At the end, few were happy. Uh, even Benjamin Franklin said he didn't think it was a particularly good document, but it, it may also be the best. He wasn't sure what it was going to be. And of those 56, 17 voted against it. And yet what we had was a compromise. We had the ability to take uh, a uh, fractious collection of states and allow for 
uh, a commonality among them, and that's what our Senate is. Each state is treated equally, Mm -hmm. but also then to reflect our population, and that's what we have in the House of Representatives. It's a compromise, and it's frankly called the the great compromise. So our government starts with compromise and then going forward from there. Tim Waltz with us, presidential historian, reaching across the aisle in U.S. history. I guess before we move on to other instances, other presidents, um, logical to assume that the greatest divides occurred during divided government. Um, what do you have to say well, about I, that? I mean, the White House in one party's hands, uh, one or both of the chambers it, in the other party's indeed, hands. Indeed. We, we, we've had fractions along different lines. In the 19th century, often it was more regional than it was by party, so that the parties evolved in the 19th century, but your biggest fractious uh, co- conflict in, in the, the 19th century was, of course, over slavery. And so the, the question was, with the addition of each new state, how do you balance uh, the slave states and the free states. And so in, in 1820, for example, when Missouri becomes a state, we added Maine as well. And so what you have is a compromise which says we're going to maintain uh, a balance. Nobody believed that slavery was necessarily good, but we had no ready solution at the time. And so in some ways, the compromise was to defer a decision. Of course, we know that eventually would lead to to civil war, uh, and, and and it was uh, Lincoln's ability to hold the country together, to eventually abolish slavery, to uh, come to 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 common ground. Uh, and to try, as he had hoped to do before he was assassinated, to plan for the rest of his administration to, to find a way to heal the nation, mm-hmm. to heal the fractious relationship. But the relationship originally was between the South and the North, not so much between the parties. Gradually in the 1850s and going on, we, we developed this party conflict. But, but we could find uh, a, a common ground, and we see it throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, where because of the temperament of individuals uh, in both parties, you could find relationships that would, would allow for connections and then solutions to persistent problems. Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump to another highlight. Uh, we have dozens of presidents to choose from. We've touched on Lincoln. We've touched on Washington. Uh, where else do you want to go? Well, let's, let's jump way into the 20th century. Uh, not too many folks are alive who remember Harry Truman, but for those who do, Harry Truman, of course, became president suddenly uh, in 1945, Uh, And and as he said, it was like a bale of hay dropped on his head. (laughs) Uh, He faced the the decision on who to appoint to the Supreme Court. A a few months after he became president, uh, Owen Roberts had retired. And so he was, of course, uh, logically expected to choose a Democrat, as most presidents these days choose somebody from their own party. Mm -hmm. He made a decision that was completely unexpected. He chose a man named Harold Burton, who was a senator from Ohio. Burton was a Republican, but he'd also been a colleague of Truman's on a Senate Oversight Committee for World War II supplies. And Truman knew Burton. He knew Burton's personality and temperament. He uh, appointed Burton. Of course, he was quickly confirmed. That's not completely a surprise. But it did surprise people that he was chosen. He turned out to be a very successful Supreme Court justice. The only Republican appointed to the Supreme Court Uh, between 1933 and 1953, and it was done by a Democratic president, Harry Truman. Um, 
Burton turned out to be an important vote, too, on the uh, Brown versus Topeka Board of Education case and many other cases. So it was a very successful appointment. Truman had a good sense, much like Lincoln. He knew good people and good ideas when he saw them, and he wasn't intimidated. And he appointed people like Dean Acheson as Secretary of State and so forth because he said, I like being in the room. These are smart people. Yeah. He learned from that, and he had read a lot of history himself. So kudos to Harry Truman. Right. A compromise. We've yeah. mentioned that several times uh, this hour here. And so often in, in our, our days today, compromise is a dirty word, yeah. a sign of weakness, uh, seen by some as a sign of weakness. But there we're pointing out it's a strength, the, the, the compromise that Harry Truman made there. Uh, bore fruit and helped our country, helped the common good. Yes, absolutely. You you have to look through the 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 partisanship and find commonality. And we most often see that with foreign policy. The idea is that our disagreements end at the water's edge. And you see that after 1945 with Arthur Vandenberg, the Republican uh, leader in the uh, Senate, on foreign policy and building a common foreign policy, fighting the Cold War. Of course, we had a, an enemy that seemed to intimidate us, intimidate us in, in the, the face of the, the, the Soviet Union and the power of the Soviet Union. But Vandenberg could work uh, with uh, Democrats to come up with, with a common Cold War foreign policy. And that's, again, another example. We see a lot of commonality, again, going back to that sense of temperament. We see it in the, the Senate more than we tend to see it in the House. The House of Representatives is somewhat fractious. We see a lot, uh, a, a greater diversity of opinion. There are a lot more people, uh, more representatives there, and, and that has led to, uh, to greater conflict. But we can find uh, congeniality. Mm-hmm. We have about five minutes before we go to break here. I think we have time to tackle, which, I, I th- you know, we have many instances here that you brought to our attention before this recording. We don't have time to touch on all of them. Uh, Tim Walsh, a presidential historian, if you just joined us, reaching across the aisle to find compromise in U.S. history, sort of a salve for our current times, yeah. a bit of a comfort if we can look. And you, did, you said, let's not be Pollyanna about this, but we do want to know that, uh, you know, that they're— uh, in the midst of partisan divide, there can be great moments. That's right. That's right. History history gives us a sense of perspective. Uh, we shouldn't live in the exact moment that, that we're in. We have to take into account what has gone before us. It, it will inform us as we go forward. So uh, there's value in history, uh, and we should take a certain measure of pride in what our uh, nation has accomplished together. Talk about the divide and the uh, compromise found during the civil rights movement uh, resulting in the Voting Rights Act and so forth. Well, of course, Lyndon Johnson, who was president of the United States uh, in passing the Civil Rights Act, was a genius. Uh, But what he did was he utilized, because he was the master of the Senate, as Robert Caro said back in his day, he understood that he could count on Mike Mansfield to work with Everett Dirksen because it was the Senate that was holding up uh, by filibuster. Southern senators refused to cooperate with the Civil Rights Bill. His own party, his own Democrats, his own people. So Lyndon Johnson said, I'm going to work with Mansfield and Dirksen. And it was Mansfield who convinced Dirksen and the Republicans to embrace the principles, the the embodiment of the Civil Rights Act. And I think he he got 20-some Republican senators to join Northern 
senators who all supported the Civil Rights Act to, in effect, break the filibuster and pass the Civil Rights Act. So crossing party lines, people like Everett Dirksen and Mike Mansfield, and again, it's those personalities. Could they work together? We see that repeatedly. We see it, for example, people will remember uh, the Gipper and the Tipper. I mean, that is <laughs> Tip O'Neill and, and Ronald Reagan yeah. could share a bourbon and, and work together, and they came to to appreciate one another, not just a couple of Irishmen sitting down to have a drink, but in fact, they saw commonality in their ideas. And if you add in some of the other senators, people like Bob Dole, George McGovern, uh, uh, Pat Moynihan, they all, again, could find common ground, even though they didn't always agree with what their opponent had to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Closely related to the civil rights movement, um, um, a minute or so on the uh, great society that Lyndon Johnson created. Absolutely. So-called great society. Indeed. What what you're looking for here is a question of reforming how we we support people. And and again, it's it's appealing across the aisles to to see the goodness in, in what was being done, not not get bogged down in the details. Uh, and Johnson had such an ability to convince people. Anyone who's seen any pictures of Johnson talking face to face to members of the Senate, you know, he would tower over them. So he he had just a power of of uh, Linda Johnson. Great magnitude. Of course, the Great Society aimed at improving education, po- fighting poverty, increasing access to voting. Uh, we've got to take a break. I wanted to end this break, uh, uh, Tim, by looking at a moment of perhaps the greatest unity in recent memory that many of us, most of us, have experienced. Uh, September 11th, uh, 2001, um, we had, uh, of course, all of us uh, with that living memory, such a shock on that day. Uh, President Bush's uh, approval ratings skyrocketing, right? Into the 70s or 80s. It was just phenomenal. And um, and uh, on that day, uh, how do you remember that day? Well, I remember the day because I was at the Hoover Presidential Library and one of my staff members came in and said, because she had heard it on her computer, of course, by then we were in the Internet age, um, that, that a, a plane had crashed. And, I, of course, we all thought well, this must be an accident. And then, of course, as the day evolved, we were a federal building and a federal site, so we had to take precautions, send the staff home, do lots of different things. It, it's cemented in my memory as the attack on Pearl Harbor was for the previous generation. Right, and it um, it brought us together as a country as as not uh, since Pearl Harbor ha- had done. Let's listen to a little bit uh, of uh, archive audio from September 11th. Uh, you'll hear then House Speaker, Republican Dennis, ha- Dennis Hastert, addressing the American people, uh, and then this amazing outbreak of uh, God Bless America, sung by uh, uh, members of Congress. But one thing that happens here in this place is when American suffers and when people perpetrate acts against this country, we as a Congress and as a government stand united and we stand together. Senators and House members, Democrats and Republicans will stand shoulder to shoulder to fight this evil that's been perpetrated on this nation. We will stand together. We'll be back in just a moment with Tim Walsh, presidential historian. Moments of partisan division, but also reaching across the aisle to find great unity, finding compromise in U.S. history. We'll be back in just a moment with more of River to River from IPR News.
Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. We're back with more River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. As we all know, America is more politicized than it has been in decades. Polls showing voters who identify as Republican and Democrat diverging sharply on political values, how political problems should be solved, uh, what they believe the nation's biggest priorities are. And um, uh, that's why we're talking today as sort of an antidote with Tim Walsh. I don't know if it's an antidote. It's some historical context for us to rest in, perhaps be comforted by, right? Tim Walsh, a presidential historian, director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch. And we're going through instances in U.S. history when people reached across the aisle. Our leaders did, and there were great things in many cases achieved. Where do you want to take us next? Well, I want to take us back to something in relatively recent memory, and that's the 1990s. And folks will remember, of course, Newt Gingrich still with us and Bill Clinton also still with us, but both largely retired. But back in the 1990s, of course, Newt Gingrich became Speaker of the House, the first Speaker of the Republican Speaker of the House in 30 years. Uh, And he had developed the contract with America. And part of that was, of course, welfare reform. And he had the votes in the House and the the Senate was with him. And they passed uh, welfare reform bills that were anathema to the Democratic Party. And for uh, a period of time, Bill Clinton, as president of the United States, vetoed those bills twice, but then was faced with a third veto. And he continued to meet with Gingrich in spite of the fact that Gingrich, of course, had been involved in, in, uh, uh, you know, promoting the the kind of whitewater controversy and lots of other things, a lot of nasty things said about uh, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. And yet Bill Clinton rose above this to see in in Gingrich uh, a a man of of great ideas and and authority and that there must be a way to find a sort of common ground. And between the two of them, in quiet, in private, they really came to, to a, a common sense of what could be done. Neither was completely happy with the end result, but a third bill was eventually passed. And that's what we called the, the or it was dubbed the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996. Of course, essentially is welfare reform. And it, it was a, a revision. It's always in, in the process of being rebuilt. But it's the very fact that these two personalities – Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich, who you would not put together uh, in most other circumstances, could come to work together. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wonder if we can move into the 21st century. Uh, We have a bit of archive audio um, uh, having to do with the 2013 budget agreement between uh, Democratic Senator Patty Murray and then Republican Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. Before we hear this audio, set this, uh, give us some context. We all know that that the budget is is kind of what drives our government. You know, where's the money coming from? What uh, level of spending are we going to have? What types of taxes will we have? Who's going to be taxed and so forth? And when you have two political parties with very strong views, as you did in the uh, the, the, the 2010s, uh, could we find common ground? And in fact, Senator Patty Murray from Washington and uh, Paul uh, Ryan, who was a, a chairman of the House Budget Committee, could get together 
they again came to admire one another and in 2013 crafted a budget bill that became something of a blueprint. First time, I think, in five years that we ever had a, a, a regular uh, order bill being passed out of the, the, the Congress. So it's, it's, it's a hallmark. There should be more uh, collaborations between the House and the Senate with people like Paul Ryan and Patty Murray. Patty Murray is still a member of the the Senate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul Ryan uh, was speaker for a short time and then somewhat abruptly retired. I think he well, indicating well, <laughs> indicating also how the Republican Party has changed dramatically oh, in, since in, Paul Ryan's time. Even. Oh, indeed. We, one might have thought that that people like John Boehner, who was Speaker of the House before uh, Paul Ryan, and then Paul Ryan were very conservative, but it's become even more conservative. And of course, if we live in a in a world where the rules are uh, winner take all, and I have to vanquish. Uh, the, the, my opponents, uh, then, then we, we don't find any compromise. So mm-hmm. the intent here has to be that both sides, to some extent, will, will get something out of the, the discussions and that we can move forward by saying it's not perfect, but it's, it, it, it's not, uh, you know, we're not being vanquished one way or another. All right. Let's go back to uh, a bit of archive audio from 2013, that budget agreement right. between uh, Senator Patty Murray, Democrat and Republican, then Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. As you mentioned to Tim, the first time in, in almost five years that lawmakers could overcome their differences and agree on a budget. I am happy to report uh, that Senator Murray and I have reached an agreement. Uh, we've been talking all year. And this week, that hard work of the two of us sitting down and talking to each other all year has paid off. This bill reduces the deficit by $23 billion, and it does not raise taxes, and it cuts spending in a smarter way. We have broken through the partisanship and the gridlock and reached a uh, bipartisan budget compromise that will prevent a government shutdown in January. Our deal puts jobs and economic growth first by rolling back sequestrations, harmful cuts to education and medical research and infrastructure investments and defense jobs for the next two years. Now, I know there were some people who thought these cuts should continue, but I'm glad that we increased these key domestic investments and that we averted the next round of scheduled cuts to military programs, bases, and defense jobs in our country. Well, look, as a conservative, I think this is a step in the right direction. What am I getting out of this? I'm getting more deficit reduction. So the deficit will go down more by passing this than if we did nothing. That's point number one. Point number two, there are no tax increases here. Point number three, we're finally starting to deal with autopilot spending, that mandatory spending that has not been addressed by Congress for years. Then Speaker of the House, Republican Paul Ryan and uh, Democratic Senator uh, Patty Murray in, from 2013. Uh, so interesting to hear to hear that. Yeah, you wanted to add. Well, I just want to add it. It was approved in the House 332 to 94 uh, and in the Senate 64 to 36. And kind of to cap it all off. It was signed into law the day after Christmas in 2013. <laughs> if so, you've, <laughs> Merry Christmas, one and all. <laughs> if you've just joined us, presidential historian Tim Walsh, uh, uh, director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum, uh, talking about, uh, well, in our deeply divided partisan times, uh, we're talking about reaching across the aisle to find compromise in U.S. history from the days of our founding fathers. You heard early in our program, uh, Washington and Lincoln. Uh, now moving up to more contemporary times. Tim, we have about 10 minutes 
left of our program. Uh, take us by the hand back into what era now? Well, let's go back just to the turn of the 21st century. Uh, of course, we remember the contested election of 2000. Uh, the, uh, the, the whole question about campaign spending, which has been pr- problematic uh, really since uh, the time of Watergate, so from the 1970s on and the Federal Election Commission and who could spend money, who could raise money, how could the money be spent, uh, troubled two senators uh, from opposite sides of the aisle, uh, John McCain of Arizona, who we've mentioned before, and then Russ Feingold of uh, Wisconsin. And together, uh, actually it was not them specifically, but it became known as the, the McCain-Feingold Act. And it was really a bipartisan campaign act to sort of regulate the, the question of spending in, in politics. There was so much... Uh, soft money or dark money, these so-called 527 groups that were, that was a reference to the IRS code, by the way, that were, were spending on campaigns. Uh, and could this be regulated? Could we have a more equitable way of, of uh, raising money and advertising uh, for, uh, for, for individual candidates and individual parties? Money was sort of uh, souring politics, and both men thought that they could find common ground, which they did in this act, uh, which... Um, was effective as of January 1st, 2003. This changed dramatically in 2009 when the Supreme Court in the Citizens United case basically said that money was the equivalent of speech. And so uh, corporations and uh, unions and other groups could spend as much money as they wanted. So really that effectively ended. But again, that idea that we can come together and find more common ground on the issue of campaign reform was reflected in the, the both the lives and the the temperaments of John McCain and Russ Feingold. Okay, John McCain, let's stay there for a moment. We have a bit of very short uh, audio here, but because when we talk about John McCain, talk about the bitter partisan fight over the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and and uh, we have uh, Senator John McCain. I think was this his last vote in the Senate? I believe this was his last effective vote. He flew back from Arizona to uh, Washington to cast his vote, and it was a question of if he voted uh, one way or another, it would determine whether the Affordable Care Act was overturned by the Senate or in effect uh, did not get the votes needed to overturn it. Let's go back to 2017. 2017. Uh, there was an audible gasp, you'll hear here, as he walked to the Senate well and gestured a thumbs down. Okay, we all remember that moment and that gesture. And uh, today we have the Affordable Care Act still intact and tens of millions of Americans covered with health insurance who wouldn't have otherwise have been because of that one vote. That's right. Exactly. I mean, uh, they needed three uh, Republican no votes to sustain the Affordable Care Act. It's the act that with each uh, election, uh, Republicans for for a decade or more said they were going to overturn uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, as they called it, and come up with something else. They could not. The American people have embraced it. It is it is a, a you know a fact of law and has stayed with us. And as you suggest, many many people have health care. And interestingly enough, we can go back to the time of Theodore Roosevelt, who first proposed uh, national health care. Uh, and each of those presidents was was uh, thwarted in their ability to find common ground. And it took until uh, Barack Obama and then. Uh, John McCain to ensure we had health care. 
Unfortunately, Tim, we only have about five minutes left five of this minutes. hour here. So I see you're looking down at your list. Uh, presidential historian Tim Walsh uh, looking at uh, moments in U.S. history, reaching across the aisle to find compromise. Um, and then maybe a, a moment or two at the end of this program to ask you about lessons learned, takeaways from this uh, this historical survey of well, uh, sort of uplifting moments, if you see compromises uplifting, which these days not everyone does. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we can find common ground if we choose to do it. And there are organizations like the Better Angel Society that are trying to do this on the, on the local level. And you often see in local government a, a mini version of these national issues we're talking about where school boards or city councils will come together to try to find common ground. Now, there have been events where it's been acrimonious and bitter, and it can be uh, folks can come into a, uh, a uh, an environment with the best of intentions and find it not possible to find common ground. But if that is your ultimate goal, that that your your opponent is not your enemy, mm-hmm. your opponent is somebody who differs with you. Let's find something in common. Let me bring up uh, Tom Harkin because uh, I interviewed him at the Harkin Center in Des Moines not uh, too many weeks ago. Um, We have on our list the American with Disabilities Act in 1990. He was the Senate either sponsor or co-sponsor of that uh, bill uh, that uh, inspired uh, disability rights uh, uh, across the country. Um, And and, uh, there are no doubt many people listening who are happy that that has been around now for decades. Compromise involved in that. Absolutely. Both sides. Again, uh, there was a lot of disagreement about disability rights uh, in the 1980s. Um, often it was it was a, a, a major problem within communities and the question of civil rights for people other than people of color. Uh, and so people with disabilities said we deserve uh, you know equal treatment as well. The Senate agreed to work together and people like Tom Harkin, whose uh, own brother uh, had had uh, hearing loss issues. Yes. And, and he understood because so often the case is when a member of Congress has had a personal experience with this kind of loss or disability or issue, it becomes uh, a compelling case. And, and Senator Harkin was, was the, um, among those leaders. And again, working together with colleagues. Um, you know, it, that's where you, I still say it is, it comes down to personalities. Mm-hmm. We have a couple minutes left uh, to, to wrap up here. Perhaps you wanted to throw in quickly another few instances we didn't get to go into in depth, but uh, t- to kind of wrap this up, put a tie it up and put a bow on it, so to speak, uh, with, with, with some concluding remarks. Here's yeah. one that I think would surprise mm-hmm. people, and that is if you were to look for the parents of the Endangered Species Act. You know, we all love to protect animals and, and, and flora and fauna and so forth. Few people realize that it was uh, a combination of an idea from President Richard Nixon, who doesn't get much in the way of plaudits these days, along with Senator Harrison Williams of New Jersey, and Representative John Dingell of Michigan, uh, all, all of whom are associated with things other than endangered species, who came together to write legislation that has led to the Endangered Species Act and saved thousands and thousands of species. And again, collaboration among people with 
very different personalities, Mm -hmm. but they respected one another going forward. And Mm -hmm. that's what makes the difference. Find the good in those people who you don't agree with. Listen to what they have to say. See if there's a bridge you can build. Mm -hmm. And um, in in the final here, a minute here, Tim, more takeaways, more lessons uh, from this so that we can sort of grasp, perhaps out of desperation. Sometimes we feel we live in desperate times, partisan times. Does our, you know, the polls showing the majority of Americans just, you know, are fed up and feel government is dysfunctional. And that is often proven in our daily news, uh, that things don't get done uh, that used to be done in, in a certain ways and in regular order. What, 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 what can you bring us out of history to conclude with, with your thoughts? Here's, here's just a, a, a phrase that I sometimes whisper to myself, and that is, things will never be as bad as you fear or as, as good as you dreamed. So the bottom line is it's going to be someplace in between and that the idea that somehow the world is going to come to an end if some political event happens or doesn't happen or uh, is, is, is probably a myth, we tend to move toward a, a, a balance or stasis. And that's what we should come to expect. Uh, and we need to take a breath and before we make uh, uh, impulsive decisions or say something we'll regret, think about what you would like for the future. I wonder if we can think about times when you look at uh, 230, 40 years of history, U.S. history. Is it a pendulum? Can you predict, or is it more like the weather, very unpredictable when we will have hyper-partisanship and then more times of coming together? One of the, one of the beauties of being an historian is you, you can look back on the past and see the order of things. Uh, it's, it's a calming influence. Looking forward, it seems to be chaotic. Okay, thank you very much for spending the hour with us. Uh, Tim Walsh, Director Emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. Much appreciated coming in there, Tim. Good to be with you. Today's program produced by Caitlin Troutman. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.